Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be covering Genesis 5 and 6, and this is the first week where we're going to take in more than one chapter, and we're not going to uh, read the whole of the section we're going to cover uh, in our sermon this morning, but we will read uh, a portion of it to outline where we're going, what we're focusing on. Um, And as I mentioned last week, if you want to uh, read ahead, then I would encourage you to do that so you're familiar with uh, what's going on each week. So Genesis chapter 6 is where we're reading. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth was filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of everything of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And we ask that God will bless the reading of his words this morning. What do you do with these stories in Genesis? If you've grown up in church, you have heard this story countless times. And more often than not, it sort of gets reduced down to, Mr. Noah built an ark. The people thought it such a lark. Mr. Noah pleaded so, and into the ark they would not go, and down came the rain in torrents. And we sing that song with our girls as it was sung to me by my parents and grandparents, and I'm sure most of you have had it sung to you or have sung it to your kids uh, or whoever it might be. It's just a story. 
Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, every civilization in the world that has been around for more than a few thousand years has this story in its culture somewhere. And the interesting thing is if you get the opportunity to read the Chinese flood accounts or uh, the one from the other Middle Eastern countries or ones from South America or so on, you find an astonishing similarity between them all. It is one family. It is a huge boat. It is a flood that completely engulfs civilization as they know it, and they have to take themselves and animals onto this ark. In some cases, the name of the central character is startlingly similar to Noah. It's astonishing. And yet, our society would look at that and think this is just a nonsense. It's just a a sort of a creation story like every other civilization has a creation story, and gloss over the fact that they're all the same. And perhaps this is not just a myth, a story, but is actually a shared experience that every group of people in the world remembers in their sort of ancestral mind, their, their, their ancestral history. And that's fine. But what do you do with the story? How do we understand this? We believe it to be true because it's in God's Word, and God has put it there for a reason, for a purpose. And we hear these awful words in this passage, truly dreadful words. And again, because it's a children's story, and more often than not printed in lovely full-color Bibles or or books of of, um, Bible stories for children, and you have these arcs with all these animals pouring out the side of the arcs with giraffes and elephants and and so on, we, we skip over the devastating words we've read in this passage. God regretted that He made mankind. It pained God that He'd made man so much, He decided to obliterate it all. Now, we hear accusations against Christianity and against Judaism and against the Bible because of things like genocides that happen are recorded in the pages of Scripture far later on in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And this gets skipped over, save by a few atheists, Dawkins um, and, uh, and Hitchens both, picked up on this story and and made it a big thing, but very few people do. God destroys everyone. Now, we don't know how big mankind is at this point, but we do read in chapter 6 that man began to multiply on the face of the land. People are everywhere, a vast number of people, and God destroys them all, washes the world clean, removes the stain of sin, as it were. What do you do with that? How do we understand this fitting into the big picture that Moses is telling the people at Mount Sinai as he tells them who you are and where you've come from and where we're going? Well, the flood story isn't just about God judging the world. The main point in this story isn't just that God is a judge, a perfect judge, although He is. It's that God actually saved somebody. That is the significance of this story. Not the many people that died, but the few that actually survived, because God, by all rights, should have just destroyed everything and started again, but He didn't. He made a promise to Eve, one of your children, not just a human being that I will make, but one of your children will come and put all of this right, and God always sticks to His promises. And so, at the very least, one child of Eve must survive 
for God's promise to be fulfilled so that the serpent's head might be crushed, sin might be destroyed, and God might be glorified for all eternity. The flood is a story of truly amazing grace. God saves mankind when they only deserve destruction. And ultimately, we see it pointing forward to the New Testament, where it's not just that God sends a flood to wipe the sin of the world away. God sends His Son so that His blood itself, not just water that pours from the sky or rises up from the sea, but the very blood of the Son of God washes away the sin of mankind, of all who will come to Him, so that we might be free and punishment might not fall upon us, so that we will be carried through judgment, so that it will come, but not to us, that we would be free from it and carried out the other side. The important thing for us to see this morning is that judgment will come, and that God's grace will be poured out. But this isn't for us as Christians grace just to focus on heaven, that we get our ticket punched for heaven by believing in Jesus, and so everything will be fine. As long as my ticket has been punched, I know where I'm going. The whole point in this story is that grace is for your life today, and we'll see that as we go through Noah's life. So, picking up in chapter 5, and uh, this would be a timely reminder for you this morning to bring your Bibles so that you can look back over the passage that we haven't perhaps read or words that aren't on the screen. But back in chapter 5, we have a, a, a repetition of the family of God. We've got this little genealogy. God creates Adam, and then He creates… Um, Adam has a son, and Adam lives so long, and then he dies, and then his son, Seth, has a son, and then he lives so long, and then he dies. And it just goes on and on and on. And we might be tempted to skip over that as just one of these things that comes up in the Bible. It's a bit dull. There's a lot of begatting going on if you have a King James Bible, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and lived so long and died. And, and, and we're tempted to skip over that. But look at what the passage says in chapter 5 if you have a Bible open. You have not just the repeated refrain that children are born and children are born and children are born, but something else. Adam lives a certain length of time and has his son, the seed of the woman, the line of children that is going to result in the Savior is preserved. The next generation comes. What did God say to Adam and Eve in the beginning? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. This is what they're created for. This is the blessing of God, and this is the blessing of God being worked out in their life. They're being fruitful and multiplying and having children. But then what happens? Adam lives so long and then he dies. His life comes to an end. And again, we gloss over that because, of course, he dies because we all experience that. We are born. Perhaps we get married, and perhaps we have children, but sure as anything, there's a day coming when we'll die, just like Adam. But remember, this is an alien experience for Adam. Adam wasn't supposed to die when he was born. He was supposed to live in perfect harmony with God forever. This is an alien experience. And Moses is pointing this out. He only lived so long. Now, he lived a long time. I don't know if you'd be thankful to live for over eight or 900 years, as many of these people did. And I believe they did live this long. I don't think this is just another one of these myths. I think they did live this long, and there are reasons for that we don't have time to go into this morning. And there are reasons why the age of man has become shortened that we don't have time to go into this morning. Chat to you about that another time if you want. But he lived, and then he died because of sin, because God said to him, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. And he does. 
And in chapter 5, we have all of these children coming to the point where Lamech is born, not the same Lamech of chapter 4, um, a, a different one. Noah's dad is born. And when Noah's dad is born, he says this peculiar, well, not when, when he has his son. Lamech lives, he has Noah, his wife gives birth to Noah, and Lamech says that Noah has been born to bring comfort from the pain of the world. And this is the first thing we see about uh, what the flood means for us, what this story teaches us about grace. Grace relieves our pain. The grace of God brings comfort in a world, in a sea of sin that corrupts and breaks and damages and ruins everything in your life. Grace brings comfort. Now, I don't know how Lamech knew, but he did. He knew that Noah was going to be significant. Not just significant, but that he was going to bring comfort, relief from the pain that all men feel because God has cursed all of the, the world, the ground, because of the sin of mankind. And they have to labor painfully, toiling simply to survive. Noah is going to put that right in some way. Now, our problem is that we believe sin won't result in pain, but in pleasure, as people in Noah's day did. Sin is just a feature of life. It, it will give joy. We give in to temptation because we believe giving in to temptation to sin, even when we know we're sinning and know it's wrong, we believe in that moment that it will bring greater pleasure, something better than denying ourselves that and following in God's way. That's why we give in to temptation. We believe even just for a second, for a moment, that sin will be better, it will be more beneficial uh, in some way. But sin always causes us pain. It always bites us far more than it delivers any real joy. Because sin's main function is separation from God. And it doesn't matter how tempting it may be, how good that particular course of action, thought, thing that you might say is, it will always result in that separation from God that brings more pain than it does joy in the long run. It might only be a small sin, but it causes breakdown and damage. It might just be a small thing, but it gets us away from God. It stops us from reading His Word. It stops us from trusting in Him, relying upon Him. Look at Adam and Eve in the garden. Immediately sin comes into the world, and what's happened? Don't trust what God said. Don't listen to what God has said. Don't live the way God wants you to live. There's something, a better way. And immediately upon eating the fruit, what happens? Pain. They're naked and they realize it. Shame. Distance from God. It always brings more hurt than it brings good. And the purpose of grace is to heal that damage. Right now, in a small way, and in a far greater way in eternity to come. But grace puts us back on track so that today we can live right with God and enjoy fellowship with Him, even while we suffer the experiences of this life. Interestingly enough, sin also causes God pain. In verse 6 of chapter 6, we're told that the sin of the world grieves God. The word grieves is the same word that Lamech uses in chapter 5, verse 29, painful. It pains God that there is sin in the world, which is why 
God is so unrelenting in His war against sin. And this goes back to what I talked about just moments ago, that God will wipe out sin because it is so utterly devastating to His people. God can have no part with sin, Scripture says, and so if we are sinful, He can have no part with us. And this is the agonizing thing for God. This is why it causes pain, because sin makes us not want God. We don't like talking about hell anymore in church today, in society today, but hell is God giving people everything they have ever dreamt of. People don't want God, and so God gives them what they want. They don't get Him, not just for a, ter- for a time, forever. That's what hell is. Distance from God for all eternity, but it will be an utter abomination for people to experience. They don't realize it, but it will. And so God is unrelenting in His war against sin, and He wants you to be unrelenting in your war against sin, because it only brings hurt and pain and damage to Him and to you. And so God brings about this plan whereby He will, at the one and the same time, wipe out sin, but preserve mankind. Again, I don't know how God is able to come up with plans like this. We know He's going to send Jesus. In Revelation, we read that the Lamb of God, Jesus, was slain from before the foundation of the world. Jesus was going to be sent before mankind even sinned, God knew, and had purpose to send Jesus to save us all. He brings about this amazing plan to allow us to survive when we deserve nothing but death by laying all the blame on the one blameless person that has ever lived. It's astonishing. So God doesn't just crush everything and start again. He offers grace in the midst of judgment so sin can be dealt with, not in a temporary way, in a complete, in a final, in a full way through the Savior He sends to His people, through comfort, Noah. Also, we should note that Noah's name is a play on words. It doesn't mean something. It sounds similar to the word comfort, but the word Noah is, without wanting to go too much into Hebrew, Noah is essentially two letters in the text, because in Hebrew they don't write down vowels, they just write down consonants, so it's just N-H. But the reverse of that, H-N, is essentially the Hebrew word grace, comfort. It's that idea that that Noah is going to be the means by which God brings favor. In verse 8 of chapter 6, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Found favor is grace. And there's a play on words here where it's almost Noah and grace together, one and the same. So, grace comes to relieve present pain, to deal with sin here and now, but also for eternity. And here in chapter 6, is how that works itself out, because grace doesn't just come in the midst of judgment. It requires something of us. It requires that we trust in God. We can emphasize that the the gift of grace and His, His saving work, that Jesus comes and He dies for you, and you don't deserve it, but He dies anyway. That is grace, that you receive salvation as, as a free gift. But Noah comes to mankind to bring that about because mankind doesn't merit it, doesn't deserve it, hasn't earned it, and God brings salvation anyway. Now, might, we might look back and think, some salvation, everybody has to die except for Noah, and yet we are failing to see things from God's perspective. Sin is so terrible, so awful, so bad, that God should have just crushed the whole of His creation and begun from scratch. But He doesn't. He comes and He says to Noah, I want you to build a boat. 
What? That's crazy talk. You want me to build a boat to save mankind from its sin, to bring comfort to people who are struggling and suffering and dying? A boat. But that's what God says. And Noah trusts in God. He hears, and he goes and he builds it. And a boat of this size, with a wee family putting it together, is going to take a long, long time to make. But he does it. And then God says, we're going to get food from all over the world and stick it on the boat. Okay? And then we're going to get two of every kind of animal and stick them on the boat. I mean, this sounds bizarre in the extreme. But Noah trusts. I don't know if you would trust God. I don't know. 99% certain. I don't think I would trust God in that kind of situation. You want to save mankind, so I'm going to build a boat and fill it with animals. Right. Okay. But Noah trusts. And the reason Noah trusts is that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He hasn't deserved this. It's just that Noah is the sort of man who walks with the Lord, listens to the Lord. And what you find beginning in chapter 6 and repeating again and again and again and again in chapter 7 through to 9 is that Noah does what the Lord commands, always. The Lord commands and Noah does. Constantly you'll hear that little phrase repeated or something similar to it. He trusts in the method of God's salvation for all that it must have appeared like foolishness to the world, and they must have mocked him for it. And so it is with us that Jesus comes to be our Savior. Explain that to a non-Christian. It's stupid. It's foolishness. You have something wrong with you in your life from birth that corrupts you beyond the point that you can know God. So what you need to do is trust in a man who lived 2,000 years ago, was condemned as a criminal at roughly the age of 33, and was nailed onto a cross and died. And then there is some story that apparently he's not in his tomb three days later. You want me to trust in that person so that I can be free from the stuff that makes me tell lies here today. That sounds so foolish. And yet we're told that there is no other name under heaven by which man may be saved than the name of Jesus. He is the only means of salvation for us, and everything in our world understandably tells us, you are fools for believing this. And yet we must trust, because this is the only means of grace that we have whereby salvation comes. Self-doubt, insecurity, worry, all of these things must have gnawed at the heart of Noah and his sons. But they did it. They trusted. And salvation came to them and to them alone. Jesus' death is the only means of salvation from sin that there is. And so we must trust. We must cling to it. For all the world will tell us it's foolish because that alone is what we have. And it will cost us to be forgiven in Jesus' name. And it will cost us to go on following Him. But this is what God has said. This is our ark to carry us through judgment and out the other side. We must trust in God. And so the question for us is, do we really see sin as being that bad? Because one of the reasons we won't trust in God is because actually the consequences of not following Him aren't really all that bad in the first place. Do we understand the gravity of our sin, the consequences of our sin as being this grave, that God really will bring judgment to the world? 
And do we see our only option as being God's way as opposed to, I'll just make my life better and work really hard? You can't. How often have you tried? How often have you failed? I don't care how old or how young you might be. You know this from your own experience. You have failed so many times. Who has lied to you more than you have in your life? I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to say that. I'm not going to live this way anymore. It's, it's lies. You're kidding yourself. We know this. Who has let you down more than you have? No one. And this is God's way of explaining to you. This is sin making itself known, but we sort of blind ourselves to that. It's God's way of revealing to us how much we need Him. We must have Him. And I don't want this to be a downer of a sermon this morning, because the glory of this this morning is that in spite of your ongoing failures, God comes and says, there's a way. Here it is. It's free. You can have it. Just trust. Only God is powerful enough to change you, to save you, and He will. At the end, the second half of chapter 6, 9 through to 22, the final section, we have another short genealogy. Noah's family are brought into the picture. The plans for the ark are given as the means of salvation. And I think we need to be careful here when stuff like this happens. There's a great temptation for us to make much of measurements and distances and so on, and we we need to be a little bit careful. We don't even know what gopher wood is. We have no idea. The point of this is not for you to have plans so you can go and build your own ark somewhere. For all that it's nice to see people making models of these things to give you an idea of how big it was and, and how much it could have contained and so on. The point in this, in the details of this passage, are to, to explain that, that God specifically lays out a plan for Noah. And Noah doesn't just sit back and think, close enough will do. We'll just build a raft. We don't really need the animals. We, you know, the fish will be fine. As long as it's big enough for me and my family, it'll all be good. Noah doesn't do that. He trusts in God's plan, but what does he do? He actually goes and builds. <laughs> he, he does it. It's a huge project, but he does it anyway. And this is the thing. It's all good and well for us to talk about trust, but if obedience doesn't follow, we're not really trusting. You're not actually willing to go and live out the thing that you say you place your trust in. You don't really trust in it, or there's no way of knowing if you do or not. God says, I want you to build this thing in this way for this purpose, and Noah actually builds the thing. And as we're going to go and see next week, he goes into the ark and is saved. Noah wouldn't have known why God wanted things arranged the way he, he did. He wouldn't have known the nature of what's to come. I'm convinced of that. He couldn't have known, and Scripture doesn't reveal God tell, told him anything about it. He was simply told, go and build, and he went, and he did as God commanded. Now, we're called not only to trust that God has things in hand, but to actually go and live in a certain way, to cast ourselves upon Christ because He cares for us, to put that information into practice, to act on it in some way. This idea, and it's one of these phrases that's floated down to us from previous generations of, of the church, to let go and let God in a circumstance. Just let go of things and let God work things out. I understand what you mean when you say that, but it's not true. We never let go and let God. 
God never expects us to disengage, to just take your hands off the steering wheel and just let the car go wherever it wants to go. He never does that. He always expects us to be active in obedience. And Jesus says that, doesn't he, in the Gospels? If you are my disciples, you will love me. And if you love me, you'll do what? You'll obey my commands. That's what love is. We trust in Jesus, but we follow Him and obey Him. And what does all of this have to do with grace? Well, it's in the story. Noah's life is transformed. He and his family are saved. The whole future of the human race is changed from the destruction it faced to life and abundance and an eternity with God, because in verse 22, Noah did all that God commanded him. When you obey and follow in Jesus' way, You are testifying to your trust in Him. You are living in light of the grace that God has poured into your life. And what will it do? It will bring transformation. You will feel and experience its change here and now because it changes the way you think. It changes the way you speak. It makes you a more loving person. And you're going to fail and you're going to struggle, but you will grow as you live in obedience to Christ. There was a great moment in the, uh, the early days of the church, in the first three centuries of the church, when the Roman Empire, through gritted teeth, the Roman Emperor had to admit that the church that was hated by the Roman government was actually doing more for homeless and sick Roman citizens than the Roman state was. And it was an utter shame upon the Emperor and Uh, his administration, because these people that we are feeding to lions are helping our sick people better than we are. We've got to do something about this. We've got to change things now. When we are transformed by grace, our lives, our community is changed, and our world is changed. Now, in light of the coronavirus and all that it brings, we are a group of people who love one another and support one another. The greatest fear of our age is isolation, is is loneliness, and there is no reason for that because we are here to support each other, and we will continue to do so throughout this. You will still get visited throughout this if you need it. You can still visit others if you want to through this. I would encourage you to as long as you don't feel ill. (laughs) But you can pray for each other, and you can phone each other, because as far as I'm aware, the coronavirus isn't so virulent, it can pass through the phone line. You can support one another and care for each other, and if there are people who come to our community fridge or our toddler group, we can sit with them and pray for them and for their loved ones and care for them, because grace changes things now. It makes us a heavenly people, citizens of the kingdom of God not just that we belong to here and now that will extend into eternity, but is felt in our midst now. I want you to hear the story of the flood and not just read of God's judgment, not just think of Mr. Noah building his ark, but to see the grace of God poured, ironically, like this great flood into the world that single-handedly wipes away sin and brings life and joy and hope and salvation. And I want you to know that in your life today, even in spite of all we face, and to live with joy in light of it. For the grace of God has come, and it will transform you today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do bring judgment for sin. It's hard to read these words, 
And yet, Lord God, we rejoice that you have brought an end to sin and a new beginning for life. And Lord God, we pray that you would help us to live in light of this, to trust in your grace, but also to live in obedience to it. We cannot be the recipients of grace without trusting and obeying. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us personally the strength to do so, that we would seek to embody this way of life as a church. And Lord God, in doing that, we ask that through us, you would shine a light into this world, that we are a different people because of it. Heavenly Father, we want people to know that there is life, that there is light in Christ. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would communicate between us and out through us this great truth, the truth of the gospel. Heavenly Father, we are in a society gripped by fear. And so, let us go out, Lord, with great confidence and boldness to proclaim that an end to fear has come because Jesus has arrived. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great goodness to us. And we ask that you would bless us with confidence and with joy in the days that lie ahead because of the comfort that you have brought through your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen.